Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samasambuddhasa Buddhang tamang sankang namasami Uh, for this evening's talk, that is carrying on more on <coughs> uh, insight practices, ways of looking at the world, uh, which relieve suffering, seeing things more as they truly are, applying that back to your meditation practice so the meditation gets deeper. You can always tell what real insight is, because if it really is insight, if you are seeing the way things really are, you can apply it to your meditation and you get more peaceful, more mindful, more joyful, more still. That's the sign of insight. It's the same as the sign of stillness. The sign of stillness is you see more things. You have greater insights. You understand things which you've never seen before. So that's why I always say that you know how deep your insight is by how still you can become. You know how deep your stillness by the amount of dhamma and insights are arising for you. Because the two always go together. But in particular, <coughs> looking at another angle to talk about, which I haven't talked about for a while. No, it's not that long. But I uh, was uh, talking this evening about just emptiness. And for many people, the idea of emptiness is easy to get your head around the non-self even though the, the two are alternatives and they're very close together. Sometimes when we try and contemplate non-self, it can be a bit scary. And it also means we have to understand what the self is, this thing which there isn't. And that means it's quite difficult. When we don't know what we're supposed to be missing, it's hard to understand non-self. In other words, you have to understand self first before you can understand non-self. So it gets all complicated. However... Emptiness is something which is much easier for us to grasp and to understand. It's also a very beautiful practice to understand emptiness, to see it, to focus on it, and to develop that perception of emptiness more and more and more. It also came up uh, because a couple of days ago I was writing, as I mentioned last week, writing, trying to write a story a day for Open the Door of Your Heart number two, I was writing about an old story of my mother's shelf in her home. Because when I first came to Australia, which was almost, almost 29 years ago now, that after being here for a few years, you know, I went, even just coming here, I, I think I only was about five years in Australia before I first went home to visit my family in England. And somebody gave me a little present from my mother. And it was a soft toy kangaroo. You know, the little ones you buy at the, the tourist shops. Yeah, it was very quiche, very expected. But when I handed it to my mother, she really appreciated it and enjoyed it. It was a very good gift for her character. And she put it on the shelf in the room where she spent most of the time. And, of course, I was very happy. And she said when I left, now I've got something to remember you by. Whenever I looked at that kangaroo, 
I will remember my son back in Australia. Very good, because I'm also soft and cuddly. And maybe in the old days. And the next time I visited, somebody offered to get me a toy kangaroo, and I said, I've got one already. So they found a toy koala. So that was the next gift, which uh, was put on my mother's shelf, next to the kangaroo, a koala bear. And the next time, it was a uh, platypus. And the next time, I got a kookaburra. And the fifth time, when I went to visit my mother, to actually to get the whole zoo, I got a wombat. And the wombat was rather big, as wombats tend to be. Even the toy was big. And when I gave it to my mother, she cuddled it, she said how wonderful it was. And then she tried to put it on her shelf next to the kangaroo, the koala, the kookaburra, and the platypus. And there was not enough space for all those animals together. Even in a zoo, they have to be in separate cages or ponds. But when she tried to put everything on the same shelf, things started to fall off. And I realized just, you know, sometimes how busy my life is. Sometimes we try and put another thing in, it just doesn't fit. If you try and put one thing in, something else falls off. And it reminded me of just how busy we can be. We don't need to be like that. So I told my mother, throw all the other toys away or give them to some charity and just put the new toy on the shelf. That way, <coughs> with only one toy on the shelf, it will take pride of place. You'll be able to give it attention. you even see it. When it's crowded in with so many other things, you just can't give it attention at all. But of course, you know what she said? No, these are all precious. They give me nice memories. No, I'm not giving them away. So she spent about two or three hours trying to balance everything on top of one another. It was crazy. But of course, that simile just shows you in your life how many things you try and fit into your brain. And it's just too much. So it's very nice, all the old stuff to throw away. When a new stuff comes in, just put it up there, alone, on the shelf that is your brain. That way you'll be able to give it attention and you won't have this, this sense of being burdened with so much stuff inside your head. It is understanding, just the first little bit of emptiness, just how much we carry around from the past, how much we carry around of our fantasies and dreams of the future. It burdens us. And sometimes you understand, why do we do that? So that's why when we meditate, we really do empty our minds of the past. It's not just emptying the mind of the past, but the past itself, as I said to one person this afternoon, the past is empty of truth. By which I say that how you remember things is probably not what happened. Yeah, you're pretty sure I was there, you might say, but everybody knows that people interpret the event differently. And after even a few hours, what you think happened is probably not what happened. And the past is so uncertain, unreliable, that it's okay to call it empty of any truth. And that really helps me to be able to let go of that past, not to keep it. So it doesn't matter what anybody said at you, who did the wrong thing, what sort of person let you down? 
that's in the past. You don't really know what they did, why they did it. So you just empty your mind of that past because the past is empty of reality and truth. And it's the same with the future. All those plans and anxieties, all the fears of what will go wrong, that also is empty of truth. I've had lots of anxieties and fears in the past, but none of them actually came true. Usually much worse things happened. <laughs> but because of that, you know it's just a total waste of time to plan or expect or worry about the future. Just, I uh, should be saying that uh, next week will be the last, this is for the, <coughs> uh, the nuns from Dhammasara, this week will be, no, next week will be the last Dharma talk because the week afterwards we've got uh, some people from Singapore doing a nine-day retreat at China Grove. And just towards, just, actually the next week is Pawarana Day anyway. Is that right, next Wednesday? Wednesday? Two weeks. Oh, Tuesday. Tuesday is Pawarana. Okay, yeah. But anyway, so then this is one, one, more, one more week to go. And sometimes when I look at the schedule I have, it's just frightening it will make me anxious. It will make me lose my sleep at night. So what I do is I just totally forget about it. Because the future is so uncertain, it doesn't bear thinking about. And I know I was talking to Ajahn Bamali. He said many of my stories he hasn't heard because I tell them at Nolamara to lay people. And usually if I'm at Nolamara, he's here. Say with Ajahn Appi. So there's one of my favorite stories, this is especially for Ajahn Brahmali, I hope you haven't heard this, it's about Nasruddin, this uh, Sufi uh, wise guy. And that's the best way of calling him, a wise guy. And because he was a wise guy, that sometimes he was accused of heresy, just like me sometimes. And when he was accused of heresy, he had to have a trial. And in front of the Shah, because he was in Iran at that time, in ancient Persia, and he was found guilty that he said something he shouldn't have done. And so the Shah, even though he liked Nasruddin, because it was always fun and interesting, he said, I'm sorry, but I've got no choice. I have to give you a death sentence. I, you have to be executed. And this uh, Sufi wise guy, he said, oh, what a great shame. I was just about to teach your donkey how to fly. And that was such a strange thing to say. The Shah said, what? So I was just about to teach your donkey how to fly. And the Shah said, can you really teach my donkey how to fly? He said, yeah, of course, but give me time, maybe take a year. And the Shah said, okay, I will sort of delay your execution by one year so you can teach my donkey how to fly. But if you don't teach him how to fly, after one year you have to be executed. Okay. And so then uh, Nasruddin, this Sufi, went off to teach the donkey how to fly. <laughs> and Ben says, you're crazy, you're mad. Now, can you really teach a, a donkey how to fly? He said, of course not. No one, no donkeys can fly. Well, what do you say that for? He said, look, I've got 12 months. Oh, no, I could die you know, tomorrow with a heart attack. You know, the shark could be over, overthrown. Who knows what can happen in the future? So that was a very wise response. The future is so unpredictable. If ever you get accused of something like that, just promise to teach you know, one of the black clats how to fly. <laughs> and who knows what might happen. <laughs> say it takes 12 months. But you can see the <laughs> where all this comes from. Where it all comes from is 
just the future is empty of any reality. So even your plans to get jhanas, that's empty of any truth. Or your expectations of what you think it will be, that's empty of anything you can rely on. There's again that favorite quote from the uh, Sapurisa Sutta, whatever you think it will be, it will be something else. You can't pin these things down. So because of that, you can totally let go of the past by knowing it's empty. And then your mind becomes empty of anxiety and empty of anger and guilt from the past. You have no fear. What a wonderful mind that would be. If it did think of the future, you know, you realize this is empty of anything I can rely upon. It's just supposition, maybes, perhaps, that's all. And anything of the past, you know, that too is, you know, maybe that was what happened, maybe it wasn't. And that way, being empty of this solid reality which we build to the past and the future, this hard edifice, which means that when it's empty of all of that, we don't get upset. We don't get angry, we don't have guilt, we don't have fear, we don't have anxiety. What a beautiful mind that will be. So then we just keep it in the present moment. And in the present moment, it's hard to get angry at the present moment. We get angry at what happened. We get afraid of what will happen. But in this present moment, it's just empty of all of that stuff. That's why the present moment, I say, is one of the first stages of emptiness. That's why I really, really emphasize it in this monastery. So many things have disappeared when you enter that present moment and stay there as much as you possibly can. Yeah, it is emptying your mind. It is taking away all those other things on the shelf that is your brain. But one of the similes Ajahn Chah said, he said the old simile that when the path is empty, in other words, when it's just been swept, when the first leaf falls on that path, it really stands out. Your mind can see it very clearly when it's one leaf falling on an empty path. <coughs> but when one leaf falls in a forest with thousands of other leaves, you can hardly distinguish its shape or its color or its size. It just gets lost in the background of other leaves. But when one leaf falls on an empty path, then you can understand it. And that's so similar to the arising of insight. If you have a complicated mind with so much stuff in it, it's hard to understand anything. But if your mind is empty, you've just got this present moment, then the contents of this moment become reasonably easy to understand, simply because it's the only thing there. It's not complicated with so much other stuff. So this is, the emptiness becomes a form of simplicity. It's not full emptiness, because things fall into it, but at least you can understand it. And even when thoughts arise, you know what it's like when you have one thought after another, after another, there's just such a forest of thoughts, you can't understand them very much. When that first thought falls into the present moment, then you've got perspective then you can understand it, just like one leaf on an empty path. You can see that to the left there's no leaves, to the right there's no leaves, above and, and in front, behind there's no leaves. The leaf is in perspective. 
For when it's one thought amongst many, 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 many thoughts, you lose perspective and you get caught in this proliferation called papancha. You just lose your perspective. You take these thoughts for something real, something solid, something reliable, something which is going to take you to some conclusion which you can rely on, which can solve problems or create happiness for you to understand the meaning of things. But you all know that those thoughts don't have that conclusion. Just the thoughts don't end. They keep going round and round. Somebody, when I first came to Perth, explained that you think around things, or think about things, just like uh, the moon goes around the earth, but it never actually lands on the earth. In the same way that you think about things, but you never get into things. It orbits around the subject, but it never actually enters it to really comprehend it, to touch it, to taste it, to know it. It's always a distance away from reality. And so after a while, you know, when one thought arises, but it doesn't sort of create another thought, then you can understand what these thoughts truly are. You can see them in the context of the emptiness before and the emptiness afterwards. When there's a continuous flow of thoughts, you're lost. So that's why it's nice in the present moment when you're still. You don't get still that often at first when you start practicing meditation. When you do get still and a thought pops up into the mind, <coughs> that first thought, you can understand it. You've got perspective. You don't get carried away with it because it's surrounded by emptiness. And it's from understanding the single leaf on the empty path you can understand all leaves. Just like in a laboratory, you know, which we, you, know, you do science experiments in, you just take one little sample and experiment with it because if there's too much, you just can't find out what's going on. You isolate things. And that's what emptiness does. It isolates experience so you can truly understand it. And by understanding these things, you realize that they are, have no real worth. You understand that that is what creates the next stage of emptiness. When things have worth and value, when you treasure them, when you think they're precious, then you can't throw them away, just like the animals on my mother's shelf. Because they were valuable and they were precious and they were full of memories or whatever she thought they were, she refused to throw them away or give them away. That's why her shelf was just so complicated. She could never find the other things which were on there. And that's what happens when you have a complicated mind. But just keeping it empty and simple, one thing at a time, is much pe more peaceful. So one's job in monastic life is to be as empty as possible. Of course, you know, you find that sometimes your hut has many things in it. And that just shows you're a, you're a cherisher, you're a keeper, a collector. So, you know, we, we use the empty hut idea as just a symbol of the empty, empty mind. The less things you have in your hut, you'll find the emptier is your mind in meditation. The more complicated your hut is, usually the more complicated your mind. That's why I like to live in my cave. There's very few things in there. It reminds me of a mind with few possessions, with few objects. Empty, dark, cool, free. So by 
at least emptying the mind. The reason, the way you can empty the mind is realize these things aren't precious. Please, your future is not precious. Your past is not precious. You don't know what's going to happen, so just let it go. Taking away the value, seeing what it is, means it fades away. Just like in that fire sermon we just uh, chanted, because these things were on fire, they were burning, that takes away any value which they have. They're painful, which is why that taking away their value, they fade away. Nibida towards them means they've got negative value. You, you don't want to keep them anymore. So understanding about the animals on the shelf, you have nibida towards them. Because you have nibida, they fade away. You chuck them away and then it's empty again. The mind is free. That's actually how it works. So you see just what, <coughs> what animals you're cherishing and why. Take away their value and you have this beautiful sense of emptiness. And some of you still have these aspirations of to achieve something in the last few days of this retreat, trying to get places. Again, please empty your mind of all those aspirations. Because as I said before, aspiration, you know, in this conditional process, which I was talking about last week, the aspiration is the proximate cause for desperation. <laughs> so because... Whenever you have an aspiration, the next stage usually is you don't achieve it, so you get desperate. And desperation is the approximate cause for expiration, where you give up. <laughs> you give up the wrong things. You give up monastic life or something. So please empty your mind of aspirations. You're in this present moment. Keep this moment as empty as you possibly can. Don't even try and fill it with the breath or with nimittas or with jhanas or anything. Because all of these ideas, it's not exactly what you expect it to be. But if you keep it empty, see how empty I can be in this moment. And emptiness is a concept which you can, as I said at the beginning, you can get your head around. It's something which you can understand much easier than a non-self. So when you see that emptiness and it grows in you, the mind has this great space and freedom. And quite often, yeah, the breath may come up by itself, but you don't go filling the mind with these things. And even the breath, you know, becomes almost like full of emptiness. You understand it just like one leaf on the path, just one breath at a time, one in-breath at a time without an out-breath, one part of an in-breath, one beginning but no middle, no end, one thing at a time. It becomes very beautiful. It's that little uh, passage from the, one of the Buddha's sutras. He said, in the past, only the past was true and the future was, was untrue. In the future, the future will be true and nothing else. But right now in this present, the present is the only thing which is true. So the moment of breath you're having now is the only thing which, you're, which is true. So you empty your mind of all that other falseness. As the mind becomes empty, you feel, start feeling what peace is like. And again, the only way you can know this is actually by the emotions which come up when the mind becomes very empty and free. You know, the emotion of peace, the emotion of pity and sukha. 
That's one of the reasons why I said you have to have some trust and understanding of the emotional world because in emptiness there's no other signposts. That's the only way you can understand that, yeah, it's getting very empty because you can't see things. It's empty of seeing things, empty of signposts, empty of thoughts and words. (coughs) But instead you can actually feel this beautiful sense of pity, this beautiful sense of tranquility or, or sukha of happiness. And as you are developing these things, just remember the emptiness into in which these things develop. So don't go filling your mind with things. The other part of emptiness is, you know, it's always reached by throwing things out. Whenever you see something on your shelf, you throw it away. And you keep throwing it away and throwing it away. That's the patinisaka, the abandoning of things, the letting go of things, not accumulating things. But you get to a certain stage in the meditation, there's nothing you can really sort of pin anything on. It's like trying to pin a medal on the in the sky, or trying to write with a paintbrush you know, on on the air. You just can't do this. And that's what it's like when the mind really becomes empty, that nothing can stick to it. See, that's the analia which starts to happen. If a thought does come, it doesn't actually gain a foothold on your mind. If a thought does get a foothold on your mind, and that's where papancha starts, one thought to another, to another, to another, to another. If your mind is like empty, that these things, they don't stick. They just go through it, just like uh, throwing a ball through empty space. It doesn't bounce, it, nothing to, to stop it. It just goes right through and doesn't come back again. So having the perception of emptiness means that, yeah, thoughts come through, but they just don't stick to you. They vanish. And with that emptiness, just like the air, just like space, it means the mind does get free of all these things. Yeah, and when <coughs> things like nimittas appear, again, just keep that perception of emptiness. This is not, nothing real. So that's one of the problems when people do so well to get to those stages of meditation. They do all the right things, and when they get to nimittas, that's when they abandon you know, the path, and they start controlling again. They start thinking it's solid, some achievement, some attainment. It's just a nimitta, that's all, nothing to do with you. It's just this empty experience. And just you know, put emptiness around this nimitta, put emptiness in the middle of it, and just see what happens. When it's something which isn't solid, it means that too can fade. So, just like even the most beautiful kangaroo you can give your mother, even that you have to push away, let go of. Even just allow that to disappear. Because if you fill your mind with a nimitta, then that's as far as you go. So keep the emptiness there, there's nothing here. And when you sort of see that even this nimitta is empty, just like, you know, in the simile of the five candors, just now the body, this is not body stuff, the body just foamed, just bubbles on the water. Now the Vedana, and this is mostly that sort of pleasure, it's just a plop on a puddle. Now sanya, the perception, just like a mirage, it's not really what's truly there. That's what a, a nimitta is, it is a mirage. Just the way we perceive it. There's nothing substantial there. 
They're the sankaras, just the onion with nothing inside. And that's, you know, the, the will. There's just nothing in there. It's just the empty bus driver's seat. Nobody in there. And even consciousness, the magician's trick to try and make something out of nothing. When you see just the full emptiness of these things, you understand that even the limited stage, if you forget emptiness and make that solid, you will never get to the jhanas. And jhanas are even deeper stages of emptiness. These are not things. These are stages of letting go. Part of the disappearing act. More things have vanished. That's why they're called jhanas. They're not getting more stuff but you're just throwing things off the shelf which you hadn't noticed before until there's less on the shelf than you've ever seen before and that's the jhanas. Things disappearing, going to deeper and deeper emptiness, nothingness, things gone. <coughs> that's what the beautiful thing is in the jhanas. The body is gone. It's, the experience is empty of any body or five senses. Now, empty of any movement in second jhana, empty of this pity thing in the third jhana, empty of even the, the sukha, absolute stillness in the fourth jhana, and just continuing that emptiness of the perceptions which give the mind something to hold on to, space and consciousness itself, even the perception of nothingness. You think that that must be the end, that you're perceiving emptiness, nothingness, but even that, there's a perception there. That has to also go. You're emptying all the way, which is why it's an incredibly powerful experience. If you keep something, you can't proceed. So don't think of attainments. They become too solid. Thinking of emptiness and see just how far you can take that concept to make it real as an experience. And who knows, that may take you all the way to the Arupas. Because that's where it should happen. And also, I'm supposed to be talking about the insights, it also, when you come out afterwards, you know, it just says all this stuff of the world, monasteries, people, robes, books, whatever else. See that, yeah, we play around with those things, but to know them for what they truly are, there's nothing really substantial in any of this. And know yourself for who you really are. There's nothing substantial inside you. You keep looking and looking and looking. You've already been through these deep states of meditation. And you keep, you know, what is there there? Why am I making something out of nothing? And after a while, you just let all these things vanish and disappear. And for those people who really do try and make something out of nothing. To say that enlightenment is the unborn, the unformed, the unconditioned. I always like to counter that, you know, with a couple of stories. This is from Mindfulness, Bliss and Beyond. Your, I think I mentioned recently, not so long ago, the story of Alice in Wonderland, where she arrived at the place of the Red Queen. And the Red Queen said, did you see anyone on the road? She said, I saw no one on the road, Your Majesty. What marvellous eyes you have to be able to see no one. It's hard enough to, for me to see someone at my age. And then when the messenger did come, 
she said to the messenger, do you see anybody on the road? And the messenger said, I saw no one on the road, Your Majesty. Yeah, this girl saw him as well. <laughs> and he said, also, no one arrived here faster than you, messenger. I'm sorry, ma'am, I did try to walk as fast as I could. You know, don't let no one beat you next time. <laughs> Always making something out of nothing. But the other one was the story, the other story of Anuruddha. When he was a young man, a young boy, sorry, he used to play marbles and gamble. And he was gambling his lunch, which was cakes. And when he lost all his cakes, he sent his uh, servant to his mother to get more cakes, and he lost them too. And a third time he lost them because everything is done three times in Buddhism. And then he sent the servant a fourth time to his mother to get more cakes to gamble. And his mother said, there aren't any cakes, they're all gone. And in Pali, the word for there aren't any is nati. So the servant came back with the empty basket and he was going to tell Anuruddha, nati cakes, there are no cakes. But because of the previous merits of Anuruddha, he was not allowed in his life to hear the word, there is not. And if the devas didn't do something, he would hear the word, there was not any cakes. And that couldn't happen. So the devas had to keep the law of karma. And so they put in heavenly cakes in the basket. And as soon as the servant came and said in the basket, there's natty cakes. And Anuruddha saw that there were cakes in there, but there were cakes he never had before. Far more delicious. And then he said, my mother doesn't love me. This is the first time he gave me, she's given me these natty cakes. And they're much more delicious than ordinary cakes. Why didn't she give me these before? And natty cakes, no cakes, became something. Just like an empty mind becomes an original mind. Or a no-self becomes the ultimate retirement home for the arahats. Whatever it is, we always try to make something out of nothing which is why emptiness is a very beautiful way into jhanas, into deep, the deepest of insights. If you go here looking for something, looking for an attainment, you're very likely, because you're looking for something, to, to make something out of nothing. But if you go into this path, you know, using emptiness from the beginning, cultivating it, cultivating the perception, cultivating the essence of emptiness, then you may be fine, there is nothing at all. So emptiness is your vehicle, emptiness becomes a goal, and emptiness becomes so beautiful. Because when it really becomes understand emptiness, it's amazing, you've just got nothing to worry about, nothing to do, nowhere to go, you're totally free. Because emptiness means there's nothing can stick on you. And it means whenever you have to do any work, especially, you know, for Venohasapanya, for senior monks here, head anagarika, whatever it is you have to do in life. Remember, you just, these things, they go through you. You don't keep anything. An empty mind means you can do anything with no residue. It's a wonderful thing which I like about the Dhamma. You know that you have that insight. You know it is true when it doesn't leave any residue afterwards. You don't keep anything. Just like my mother's shelf, you finish your work and there's nothing left. 
you do your jobs, you don't even think about it afterwards. You don't ask for praise, you don't accept any criticism. It's just all gone, it's a thing of the past. Just how peaceful the mind can be, how free and how empty. We're understanding that this is a beautiful way to live and it's a beautiful ending afterwards. Just empty, there was nothing there to begin with, there's nothing there afterwards. Emptiness all the way. Understanding that too answers all the problems about you know, what happens to an arahat when they pass away. It was empty right now, empty before, empty afterwards, there's nothing there. What's the problem? So the idea of emptiness is a very beautiful perception to, um, to cultivate. And I encourage you to do that. I know that I always cultivate that emptiness after I have a cup of tea. I enjoy my tea, but once it's finished I look in the glass and say, there's nothing there anymore. Emptiness <laughs> is there for you at any time. So that's a little talk this evening on cultivating emptiness. Very good.